Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. It is in Christ alone that we stand this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I hope that we can see that today from our section of Scripture. As we continue through the Gospel of Mark, as you know, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for 30-something weeks now, and uh, we're coming in on the last final uh, few. And uh, we covered chapter 16 back at Easter, and so we, uh, we're we in the end of 14, we'll go into 15 over the next two weeks, and then it'll be time for Christmas and Advent. Can you believe it? Where did 2020 go, really, right? It's like it's been so fast. Um, I wonder what happened this year. Yeah. Uh, I think New Year's resolutions will be different this year. Anyways, this morning as we get into Scripture, we're going to look at some uh, ideas of fight, flight, or faith. And that's exactly what we see as the tensions begin to rise, as the cross gets closer and closer and closer to Christ, we see that there's some reactions that take place. And maybe you know this or not, but fight or flight is kind of our reaction to when things go wrong. So it's our body's response to perceived threat or danger. And so two feelings kind of lead into this, and those are both fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. Now, I don't know if you've experienced fear and anxiety this week watching the news, but possibly some of you did. And I just want to let you know that there's a third option for those who are in Christ and it's faith. There's, There's a stability in knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing the one who holds all things, is sovereign over all things, and nothing takes him by surprise. And so we can have fear and anxiety because that's part of life. But one of the ways that we get through that is not by fight or flight, but it's through faith. And so let's just have faith. No matter which side you're on, we can all agree that this world is uh, 2020. So, yeah, that's the best way to put it. Fear is the emotion you experience when you are actually in a dangerous situation. Anxiety, however, is what you experience leading up to the dangerous, stressful, threatening situation. Now, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble this morning, okay? So I just want you to know that. But I think the best way to describe fear and anxiety is through the illustration of a roller coaster, right? There is fear and anxiety on people's faces. And one of my favorite things is going... To, to Disney or to our amusement park with my family, especially when they were younger, and just watching the fear on my kids' faces. There's just something that brings a dad sheer joy is seeing their kid scared to death for no reason and no reason at all. And, uh, and, and so we went on this one ride, maybe you're familiar with it, the Tower of Terror. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's just a classic. And so usually they take pictures of you and, and you have the opportunity to buy one of those. And so I took that opportunity to buy this one. And my wife is like, now that is not fear. That is excitement. Okay. And so she's, she's a good sport this morning. That's exactly what she is. But look at my daughter. That is some anxiety. I mean, she's trying to figure out, I had to put my hand over because she was trying to figure out how to flight mid ride. Like, how do I get out of this? How am I going to get out of this situation? Fight flight, or faith. And as we get into Scripture, you're going to see that the fear and the anxiety that uh, both grip the disciples and Jesus gets them to a situation where they have to decide, how am I going to react? So let me pray for us, and we'll jump into Scripture. Father, we thank you so much for your Word. Your Word is true. Your Word is light. Your Word is good, and it leads, and it guides us, and it instructs us, but more importantly, it shows us you. So Father, reveal yourself to us 
through your son Jesus Christ and through your word this morning so that we could have a better understanding of your sovereignty, of your grace, of your mercy, of your forgiveness, and your unfathomable love for us as sinners. So Lord, we come to you. Speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want you to see this morning is Jesus was abandoned by his brothers. He was abandoned by his brothers. So we'll pick up in verse 27 there and go through 31. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All of them are beginning to kind of chime in and agree like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not going anywhere. There's going to be no flight on our behalf. Like we understand things are getting kind of heated. You've just done the Lord's Supper with us and you've told us uh, repeatedly that you're going to have to die and that you're going to rise again. And even if we have to die with you, we're going nowhere. There's no flight in us. And Jesus says, but let me tell you, you will all fall away. You will all fall. This word fall is the Greek verb scandalizo, which is basically the idea of being caught in a trap. It's the word where we get scandalized from. And so Jesus here, he's informing them that they're all going to be scandalized. There's going to be a moment where they're all going to be trapped in the fear and the anxiety of what's about to happen. And they're going to be either one, fight or flight. And in Peter's case, as we see, he does both. He just tries both of those out. And so they will all be offended. They will all defect and they will all fall away. Scandalized, shock or horror to horrify somebody with something. They're at a moment where they've got to figure out, what do I do? How do I get out of this? You will all fall away. And he says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus here is telling them the prophecy that was written about him. He knew his and their future and that he would be struck down and they would, it would cause them to be filled with terror and fear and that they would scatter. Jesus basically here is quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. So Jesus is just going to take God's word and he says, look, guys, I know exactly what's going to happen because here's, what's God, here's what God's word says about me and about you. And in this verse, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The prophecy by Zechariah here gives us a very important detail into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus is quoting this prophecy that was written years and years and years before Jesus. And he's saying, look, there's a reason why Jesus is about to be arrested. There's a reason that he's about to be put on trial and a reason he's about to be crucified. It's because of God's sovereign will. So as we look at this, we see he says, my shepherd. And he says, the man who stands next to me. This prophecy declares that God will strike down his very own, that God is in complete control of the situation that's happening. And Jesus is just relaying the message to his disciples of this is what God's word says. This is what God's going to do. And I can tell you exactly how it's going to end. You will all fall away. You will all fall away. God is in complete control. Jesus is getting on board with the will of the Father. And John 10, 18 says this way, no one takes my life from me 
but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus knows what the Father's plan is as he enters into this night, as he's talking to his disciples. Look, guys, you're all going to flight. It's going to get real hairy. It's going to get real, real fearful. There's going to be a lot of anxiety that's going on here, and you're all going to try to make a decision, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this is what God's Word says. And yet Peter doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe what's going to happen. The interesting thing about this is that God uses the evil intentions and actions of sinful men for his divine plan of redemption and the greatest possible good of saving sinners. I point that out to tell you that we look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ much differently than they would have looked at it during the time that it happened. How in the world would God allow this to happen to his own son? How in the world would he allow these sinful people to come and to arrest Jesus, to put him on trial, to beat him, to flog him, to to crucify him on a cross? How in the world would God the Father, who's sovereign, who's control of all things, allow something so horrifying and fearful to happen? Because he takes the actions of sinful man to bring about the glory of God for the redemption of mankind. That's remarkable. We look at the things that are taking place in this world and we think, how in the world could God allow something like this to happen? How in the world could God allow things to be falling apart all over the world? How can there be so many things taking place? Let me tell you something, because God is sovereign, he's in complete control, and he allows even the actions of sinful man to lead towards the redemption of those who love him. God is in complete control. He's in complete control of what's happening here as he's headed towards the cross. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus here even says, I know exactly what's going to happen after the crucifixion. Jesus not only knows that he will be put to death, but he also knows that he will defeat the grave and he will meet them again. Jesus gives his disciple a fire escape plan. When the fire of the crucifixion is over, meet me in Galilee. Now, I don't know if you've done this with your kids or you did this with your kids. There's a fire escape plan for your house. There should be. Hey, if anything ever goes wrong in this house, if a house ever catches on fire, meet at the tree in the front yard or meet at the mailbox, right? There's a fire escape plan. Anybody know? You're supposed to, okay? If you're a good parent, you have a fire escape plan. We don't have one, do we? We don't have one, no. Well, too late. They're, they're teenagers. They'll be fun. All right. So this is what you got to do. You got to get a fire escape plan. This is what Jesus says. Look, there's a fire escape plan. When all this stuff goes down, when it's all said and done, I'll meet you in Galilee. And this is exactly what happens in Matthew's gospel. As we get to the Great Commission, verse 16, Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. They were obedient. They went exactly where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He's like, look, I want you to be obedient and I want you to go exactly where I tell you to go. And he tells us and his disciples that we are to go and make disciples of all nations because he's coming back. There's a fire escape plan and one day he's going to return and we're going to meet him in, in the sky. Amen. So let's be about his business. Let's go. Let's be obedient because he's in complete control and he's working all things out for the redemption and the salvation of mankind. But Peter, Peter's the one that we can all agree with, Right. He's the one that we all identify with. But Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. He's like, look, Jesus, I see all these jokers too. You're probably right. 
Not me. Not me. They're all teenagers. I'm like 22. Like, I know what I'm talking about. Right? If you look up, you know, church history, all the disciples were probably teenagers, except for Peter. Peter's like, yeah, I understand. They're that generation. They're the, they're the canceled generation, the flight generation. I understand. I should get back to the word. Okay, verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We're with Peter. Whatever Peter says, that sounds sounds good. Did you notice something, though? Jesus is telling them God's word. And Peter's making this bold pronouncement and basically calling Jesus a liar. Yeah, Jesus, I, I know that's what Zacharias says. I know that's what you say, but I know better. In fact, I think I know me better than you know me because I know myself. Peter essentially says, I know better than you, and I know better than what the Word says. I have faith, and I will not flight. In other words, even though these other guys may all fall away, I will never fall away because I have more faith than they do. Sometimes we get really bold in our faith, when we look at it in comparison to the people around us. I know about all these other jokers, but I'm not going to do it. And what happens is we deny the fact that we are all faulty. We all are sinful. We all have that part of us that looks to flight. Now, the students this weekend, I'm, this is my time to wake them back up, right? All right, boys and girls. You had a long weekend. You learned a lot, right? Uh, you're super excited about it, I can tell. And um, you, were, you were challenged out of the book of Hebrews. And so what I want to do is I want to read a section. You're, you, this is, this is, you've already heard this, okay? But they haven't. So I'm going to tell them. You were, you were challenged this weekend to keep your focus on Christ. And what I'm seeing from the scripture that we're looking at right here is that Peter, at this point, when Jesus is talking to him and he's reading God's word, he's telling him what Zachariah says, and he's telling him the word of Jesus Christ He says, you know what? But I'm focused on me, and I'm not going to fall. I'm stronger than all these other people. So this is what Hebrews says, and this is what you were were shown this weekend, that faith is only as strong as the object in which it's fixed upon. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. So this is what we see. Jesus is speaking. He's, He's relaying what the prophet Zechariah says. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These are the verses you heard on Friday night. This is exactly what's happening. You got Jesus Christ who's the exact imprint of the glory of God. He's standing there with his disciples and he's saying, look, this is what the prophet said. I'm going to tell you what the prophet said. This is exactly what's going to happen. And Peter's like, no, I don't don't believe you. I know better. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter two would say this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Peter Pay attention to what Jesus is saying to you because if you're not going to pay attention to his word, you're going to start to drift away from it. You're going to start to 
think that you, you can handle the situation, the anxiety and the fear and the temptations and the frustrations that you're about to go through. But you need to pay much closer attention. But what's interesting about paying attention to God's word is we can't really pay attention to God's word if we're too busy arguing with the Son of God. And for a lot of us, we argue with Jesus. I think I know better. This isn't going to affect me. I can participate in this, and it's not going to affect my walk. We should pay much closer attention to the Word of God in times like this, because as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Whenever we begin to think that we are good, watch out. Take heed or pay much closer attention to the Word of God and the voice of God of God. Peter would explain it this way later on in life, knowing that he's going to deny Christ or that he did deny Christ. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11 says this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there. This is what Peter says. Look, you, you need to pay much closer attention because if you're not supplementing your faith, if you're not adding to your faith and focusing your faith, and you're not seeing the character of God begin to grow in your life, then you're probably going to be living a life that says, yes, I believe in God, but it's very unfruitful for the kingdom. And so you need to be paying much closer attention to what the Word of God says. For whoever, verse 9, lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never, what? Fall. Peter says, look, guys, I was not focused on the word of God. I was not focused on faith in God. I was focused on what I believed that I could accomplish apart from God, and I failed. And if we believe that we can accomplish anything for the glory of God apart from the grace of God, then we have failed. We are setting ourselves up for failure. So let's be more fruitful. Let's focus in and pay much more close attention because if we become nearsighted and we focus only on ourselves, we set ourselves up for failure. Peter knows the pitfalls of becoming nearsighted and falling away because Peter's faith was fixated on himself. Peter's faith was fixated on his strength. Peter needed to fixate on the Word of God. He needed to feed or supplement his walk with the character of Christ rather than boast in his ability to be faithful. You ever seen, uh, when I see the word supplement there, I think about athletes who take supplements so that they can be better athletes. Do you, am I, that's just me. So uh, maybe you've seen this when you're, when you're watching sports. Maybe you quit watching sports because it's too political. But either way, maybe you've seen them do this. They make a bowl with their hand and they start feeding themselves after they make a play. Anybody see that? Okay, good. I was like, man, this is a horrible illustration if no one has seen this. So basically what they're saying is feed me the ball because I'm going to keep making plays. Okay, so supplement your faith. This is what Peter would say. If you don't want to fall, if you don't want to drift, if you don't want to lose focus, then keep feeding yourself the word of God. Keep feeding on the word of God. Listen, there's so many times where we neglect the word of God we don't believe the word of God. And we find ourselves, as Peter would say, ineffective 
and unfruitful for the glory of God. Maybe we're listening to other people. Maybe we're watching too much news. Maybe we're invested in so many other things looking for answers that we haven't gone back to God's word. If we start focusing and feeding on ourselves and the things of the world that satisfy our flesh, we will become so nearsighted in our faith that we set ourselves up to fall. Unfortunately, like Peter, we don't focus on faith, our faith on Christ, because we think we know ourselves better than God knows us. We think we are spiritually stronger than others, and so we're good. Peter said, even if they all fall, I will not. I'm better than they are. And yet he did. The second thing I want you to see is Jesus was alone in the garden. Jesus was alone in the garden. He was abandoned by his brothers, and now he's alone in the garden. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that hour might pass from him. Verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, what you want, what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. And their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus goes into the Mount of Olives. He knows exactly where he's going. He's going to the place that he's gone to quite often before to pray. And he's taken his closest, most intimate friends, Peter, James, and John, the closest ones to him. And he's saying, let's go in a little bit further and let's pray because the anxiety and the fear is beginning to heighten. And John's gospel says this in John 18, one through two, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This is not some new place. This is a very familiar place. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would often retreat with his disciples to pray. And so Judas not being with them at that point, because he's already left to go and grab the mob of people that are on their way, knows exactly where they'll be, because he knows that Jesus is someone who likes to go and to pray. And that's exactly where he is. So we see that he's crossing the brook of Kidron. What's significant about this brook is that during the time of Passover, which is the time when all these lambs were being slaughtered, this brook would carry water down from the temple and different things like that. And so it was probably filled with blood from all the sacrifices that had been taking place at the temple. So as Jesus is now walking towards the cross, he's literally walking across a brook that is full of blood, which is the picture of what's about to happen to him. He's going to be beat. He's going to be marred. He's going to be bloodied. 
He's going to be unrecognizable because all of his flesh is going to be ripped off his back when he is beaten here in a few hours. And he steps over the blood, the blood that represents the fact that he washes away the sins of man. What a heavy moment. What fear must grip Jesus because he's not just fully God, he's fully man. He's fully God. He fully is aware of all the things that are coming down the pike. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But he's also fully man, and he fully understands the weight, the anxiety, and the fear of what he's about to face. There was a garden there. The Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means basically, basically olive press. He's beginning to feel the pressure and the weight of the sin that's going to be poured out on him. Luke twenty two forty four says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Jesus is beginning to feel the agony, the anxiety, and the fear of what's about to happen to him, but also the separation that's about to happen from God. His sweat became like great drops of blood. This is a medical condition where an involuntary nervous system reacts and the capillaries in your forehead begin to burst and blood begins to come out of their pores. And this is exactly the stress that Jesus is under. It says that he was greatly distressed and troubled. I don't think we can have words to describe the stress that Jesus is about to face. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Tim Keller beautifully tells us the pressure that Jesus is facing is not just the pressure of the physical agony that he's about to go through, but the spiritual agony that he's about to go through. And it says this, in the garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual cosmic infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. The flesh of Jesus is now feeling the full weight, the pressure, the anxiety, and the fear. And so he turns to his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he says, hey, I want you to watch and pray. I want you to watch and pray. I need you to come alongside me and watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch, which means have an attentive awareness Attentive to the snares of the world, aware of the adversary that is looking to devour you. Peter would talk about this later on, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter knows all about failure. He knows all about being devoured, about not being awake, about not being watchful. He says, I want you to watch, I want you to pray. Pray, meaning I want you to seek power outside of yourself. Pray because there's a supernatural power in prayer. Pray because it focuses your faith on Christ and not on your circumstances. 
This is why Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Sometimes we lack the power of faith because we lack to spend time in prayer. We don't focus in on God's word enough. We argue with it. We think I'm good. I've got enough power on my own. I've got enough faith on my own, but faith is a gift from God. And we need faith to hold us during times where we struggle, when we want to flight or we want to fight, when anxiety and fear begin to increase. He tells us to watch and to pray because it's really hard to fall into temptation if you're focusing on Christ and a mindset of constant prayer. It's really hard to fall into temptation when you're really spending time in prayer because our redeemed spirits are still attached to sinful flesh. And, and we know this. God has redeemed us. He saved us. But we're still attached to the flesh and it is at war with the things of God. Therefore, a faith that prays is a faith that doesn't easily fall. Jesus knew that all of them would fall away because Jesus knew that not all of them would pray. If Jesus knows that they're all going to fall, he probably knows that as he goes into the garden that they're not really going to pray. But it doesn't stop him from asking them to pray. It doesn't stop him from encouraging them to pray repeatedly. It doesn't stop him from taking them to a place to pray that they're familiar with. However, their choice to not pray caused them to miss out on the power of faith. It's not enough for us to be in a place of prayer. It's not enough for us to be encouraged, students, to spend time in prayer. It's not enough for us to be challenged to pray. At some point, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who are believers in Jesus Christ have to stop, watch, and pray. At some point, we must watch and pray if we want to see the power and the character of Christ in our life. Here's the last thing. Jesus was arrested by a mob. Verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a, drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left and fled. Fight, flight, or faith. We've seen the Jesus is going to predict the fight that happens at the end of this. He's predicted that he's going to be able to stand with faith because of what Jesus is, uh, what God has asked Jesus to do. And now we see the fight. We learn from John's gospel, John 18, that this is Simon Peter. Peter that said, I'll never fail. I'll never flight. I'll fight. And what's so interesting about this is that Peter, he picks on, looks like the intern right? He picks on the intern. It's a servant named Malchus. 
This is the servant to the high priest. This is some, some guy who probably doesn't have a sword, probably isn't ready to fight. He's just along for the ride. But there's, there's soldiers there. There's the temple police are there. These Roman soldiers, they're all there with their swords and their clubs. And then there's this little intern, and Peter's like, I'll take him out. That's who I'm going to pick on. And Jesus is like, what, what are you doing? Am I not to drink the cup that God's designed for me to drink, that he's chosen for me to drink? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then Luke's gospel tells us in 2251, and Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. I find it remarkable, the love and the care that Jesus shows, even when he's being arrested. Love and care. Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. At any point, Jesus could have been arrested. But instead, in the dark of night, in a way of being a coward, Judas comes and he kisses Jesus. And this word kiss is, it's, I mean, it's like, it wasn't just a little... You know, like, it was like an affectionate kiss, a kiss of betrayal for, for a few pieces of silver. He turns on the one that he's walked with for years. All of this takes place, and all of the disciples that are there leave. They run. And then we get this little interesting verse in verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Isn't that a great, I just love that. Most scholars say this is probably Mark. The, the Last Supper was probably, it probably took place at Mark's house. Mark's this young kid. He's just kind of watching what's going on. He's following Jesus. He loves Jesus. And the soldier's like, let's grab him too. And he's like, nope, whoosh. And he just runs off naked. Not going to get me. Fight, flight, or faith. Jesus faces the cross with faith. Jesus faced the anxiety and the fear of God's will for him with faith. Because before Jesus could surrender his body to be beaten and crucified on a cross, he had to first surrender his will to the Father in the garden. I want you to get the picture of this. In the Garden of Eden the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, Adam said to the Father, not your will, but mine be done. And he plunged all of humanity into sin. But in the Garden of Eden, Jesus, the better Adam, said, not my will, but yours be done. For us as believers in Christ, before we can surrender to follow Christ in our actions, we must first surrender to him our will. I think I want to end there. There's a lot of us like Peter. I'll never deny you. I'll never run. I'll never flight. I'll fight the intern. I'll take the easy way out. But really, God knows us better than we know ourselves because he knows whether or not we've really surrendered our will to him. And I think that's where it comes down. We can say a lot of things. We can say we believe in Jesus Christ. We can say we profess him as our Lord and Savior. But when we're making decisions, 
Is it my will be done or is it his will be done? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.